<laughs> it'd be cool if they put composers in the American passport. You know, I mean, be, you know that be... that would be really cool. Is, are there any countries that do that? I bet like the Polish passport has some Chopin yeah. in it. Yeah, um, I do think the American passport is very American, and I kind of love it. Oh my god, it's, it's a horrendous it's so looking American. passport. Passport, but I like when you open the page with your picture on it. There's the giant eagle <laughs> yeah. right there. Here we are for our special America episode. Yeah, this feels kind of funny. This is, you know, being, this is being recorded out of time. <laughs> but if there's one, if there's one date that's fixed in history that we want to air this podcast on, it's of course July 4th. <laughs> yep. A question for you. I mean, how many 4th of Julys have you had now as an American citizen? Oh, that's a good question. Now, I, I think I became a citizen in 2013, okay. maybe 2012. It's one of those years. I, it sounds about right. I remember it was around the time we were wrapping up college that, yeah. that, that you were taking your test. And yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess this would be my seventh or my eighth, something like that. Um, How does it feel? It feels red-blooded, man. It feels good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, still, and, um, still, still haven't uh, done many of the classic things like, um, you know, eating at barbecue cookouts or what do you, what do you guys do? See, I, like I'm clearly, I, you know, I got my citizenship, but I clearly am not hip to American culture at all. <laughs> yeah, well, there's a nomenclature thing going on too, right? Like on the West Coast, we call them barbecues, but I believe on the East Coast and in, and in the Midwest, they call them cookouts. Oh, okay. Uh, so, that, so now I don't feel right? so bad. Yeah, yeah. I think they're the same concept, though. You just get together in, in the backyard with, with a barbecue, and you, you have to eat off paper plates with plastic utensils. That's, that's part of the experience. And, and, you know, it has some classic American cuisine. Hamburgers, hot dogs, Budweiser. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, beer that tastes like Yeah. I mean, I'm sure, I, I, I guess you're probably right, but I'm sure somewhere there's someone in, like, Kansas who's, like, yelling at his podcast player right now because, you know, this isn't what barbecue is, he's saying. <laughs> you know, we, we may have listeners in Kansas nowadays. I, I oh, noticed really? a, lot of, a lot of Tornado Alley was filling up with our, um, our download metrics. Well, maybe I should watch yeah, what so. I say then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Shooter. That's America. <laughs> That's America you're talking about. Yes, yeah, it's, it's the real America, right? As we're so often told. <laughs> we had the idea that we would honor... <laughs> honor our mutual American passports and <laughs> identity and citizenship by chatting about American classical music. It's hard to know where to start because because American music is, is like truly broad nowadays, you know? Yeah. Um, it's really grown in the last 100 years, obviously. Um, yeah. And now it's like a real thing. There's no, there's no one thing that is American music. Right, right. So... Yeah, it is hard to know where, where to start, but um, they, I, I, do, I do remember um, that there, there was a moment there was a moment in, in Leonard Bernstein's Young People's Concert um, 
I think it was called like you know what is what is American music or something. Yep, that's right. And I, I remember stri- strikingly that he he starts it by playing um, an American in Paris by George Gershwin, who who we who we talked who, which piece um, we talked about in the YouTube showdown episode. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and after he's done playing, he turns to the audience and says something like, you know, everybody, everybody on stage or everybody in this concert hall in this country, or for that matter, you know, anyone anywhere in the civilized world um, will hear this music and, and, and hear it as something that is recognizably American music. And it's not yeah. just because the composer is American and it's not just because the title of the piece is an American in Paris. It's because the music sounds American. So maybe a good place to start is, is, is right there. Um, what is that? What, what, what does he mean by that? Yeah, that's a great lecture, too, that we'll definitely link to. Uh, yeah. Because it's an, in, it's an interesting question, right? It's, he performs that piece, or you know, a part of that piece for the, for the audience. Um, and for those of you who don't know, the Leonard Bernstein Young People's Lectures are truly fantastic. Um, it was a lecture series he gave at, with the New York Philharmonic for a, a few decades. Basically, they would fill the New York Philharmonic concert hall, or when they performed in Carnegie Hall, they'd use that concert hall on stage. And basically, it was filled with school children, you know, elementary and maybe middle school aged kids. And each concert would have a question that he would try to answer over the course of an hour or two with all these young kids. And they were very difficult uh, penetrating questions. Uh, some were, what is melody? Or what's some... Uh, what does music mean? Yeah. And one of them is called The Creative Performer. Hmm. About, okay. about um, what, what it is to be creative when you're, when you're really doing something that's, that's um, recreative, like playing music that's already hmm. been written down. Right. Um, so yeah. th- these are not, these are not, um, you know, these are, he's explaining them in a way that's accessible to children and to everyone, but these are not childish questions. Very well put. Yeah, that's exactly it. And the question he poses, the question he poses for this lecture is, what is American music? And yeah, he, he performs part of a piece in American in Paris. He turns to the crowd and says, we all know that music we just played is American. And it's not because the title, the composer, no, the notes themselves sound American. And why is that? Right. And that's the question that he poses and he tries to answer over the next two hours. One of the things he points out right off the back is American music as we know it is pretty recent, maybe a hundred years old. There were American composers back in the 1800s that were composing lots of grand orchestral music but it's funny when you listen to it like um like it um amy beach is one of those composers so is george chadwick (laughs) 
Yeah. And it's music we study for an academic, you know, point. But you would never really see it performed that often nowadays. And it's not because the music is bad, but when you listen to it, it's almost indistinguishable from the music of the Germans in the 1800s, of, of the music of Brahms, of the music of Verdi, the music of... It's um, derivative. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty indistinguishable from the music the Europeans are writing at that same time. And, and, and I, think in, I think it's in this lecture that Leonard Bernstein um, compares that phase to being like in primary school or something like that. Yeah, right, um, right. Like it's like a very young, like it was like American music when it was still a kid. Because, you know, when you're still a kid, you don't really know what you think about anything yet. You're just copying what older people have done. So that's, right, that's right. kind of that phase of American music. Right, right. The really poignant example of true American music is jazz, of course. And I, I would actually even go beyond that. I would say jazz is the truest and the original American art form. And it's an art form that could have only happened in America. You know, when you have the Western traditions of of Europe and tonal harmony and the European classical uh, canon kind of combined with the immigrant culture from Africa and such in New Orleans and along the Mississippi River that this new kind of unique art form start, started to grow and evolve and get popular. And this is, of course, in the early 1900s. And I, I, I still do think, um, even like today, like uh, American music, American culture still is rooted in jazz because jazz is, was just, and still is, a really unfiltered look at American identity. One of the documentaries I cannot recommend highly enough is Ken Burns' History of Jazz documentary, or I think it's just called Jazz. It's on Amazon Prime right now, and it's it's an investment. It's a good 15 hours or so long documentary broken up into several parts. But it's, um, I mean, I, I know quite a bit about jazz and I watched this for the first time finally a few months ago or earlier this year, I should say. And I learned a ton. I learned so much. And and I, I think too, it's fun. Um, I think every American would enjoy this. And even if you're, even if you're not American, this is just so quintessentially American. It's like studying Viennese waltz or Argentine tango or Cuban salsa. It's just, it's just uh, in, in all of our veins, whether you know it or not, jazz and its role, it played not only in music and art, but in our culture, our politics, and society. Yeah, well said, yeah. It has enjoyed huge popularity and survived hard times, but it has always reflected Americans, all Americans at their best. Jazz, the drummer Art Blakey liked to say, washes away the dust of everyday life. Ken Burns is just a brilliant documentarian and really just really brilliantly tells the story of it. And, and I think Gershwin is a really good place to kind of dive into this, as we're talking about, where what Gershwin, and I think we've mentioned this before on the, on, on the show, what Gershwin kind of did brilliantly is take jazz off the street, right, off the street, and put it in a tux, put it in the concert hall, and <laughs> force the, the Carnegie Hall crowd to listen to it and respect it and enjoy it. 
Yeah, and and did they? Do you, do you know anything about what the what the pushback was like to no, I, to Gershwin's early premieres? Rhapsody in Blue was a big success from its premiere, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and also Gershwin was such an innovator, right? Uh, the famous opening clarinet glissando that is, you know. Real famous now, again, from the United Airlines commercials. (laughs) (laughs) But that was not what Gershwin originally wrote. I think it was just a scale he wrote for that part. But he heard the clarinetist kind of fooling around in, in rehearsals with that and Gershwin heard it and was like, and said, "Yeah, let's do that instead." So, Interesting. Yeah, he he was um, he, he was very very much the composer again. Front, you know, had that jazz perspective of not not being obsessed with the way you heard it in your head, but being able to improvise off the musicians around you. Yeah, that that, that that's a that's a nice way of putting it. Um, and also. I think it gets forgotten way too easily. Gershwin was one of the finest and best pianists of the 20th century. <laughs> he was an yeah. incredible piano player, you know, in addition to being a great composer. He, he, he studied with Nadia Boulanger, right? I believe so, yeah, yeah. And, and um, do you know if he studied piano or just composition with her? I think it was just composition with her. Uh, Nadia Boulanger was a, was a composition teacher in Paris, right? Mm-hmm. Um, she 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 was one of the most influential teachers for mm-hmm. for like for like a, you know like two generations of composers. Um, yeah. The 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 list of her students is a very prestigious one. Yeah, I mean, she taught George Gershwin, Leonard Bernstein, Aaron Copland, Astor Piazzolla, Elliot Carter, I believe, um, Philip Glass. Philip Glass. <laughs> um, who else? Yeah, I'm, I'm mean, sure. I'm sure we're leaving some off, but <laughs> yeah. Um, and she she had a very interesting style of teaching. Um, like among other things, I think one of the things that she would do with her students is just have them um, copy the scores of of you know a lot of compositions by J. S. Bach. Um, just actually write them down, like re rewrite them down and study them as they were writing it. And so the the entire uh, you know. A large part of her teaching was just to go back and study Bach. Hmm. So, um, you know, because again, like we were saying before, I mean, he his music is really the the foundations of modern music. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the ways that you can you can distinguish uh, someone who has studied with with Boulanger is um, a real a real grasp of of the the sort of fundamentals of how to just um, structure music. That kind of shines through when I mean, you listen to a lot of Piazzolla pieces. There's many Bachian parts, exactly. which is a compliment. That's a, that's a, yeah. Yeah. And Philip Glass too. You know, yeah, repetitive yeah. as it may sound, if you if you just listen to it, um, the the structure is very tight, and and it is also um, abstract in a way that's similar to to Bach's music. Hmm. Well, well put. Well put. Yeah. Um, what pieces of Gershwin do you like that maybe aren't aren't so popularized as his main staples? Hmm. Well, I really like those three preludes. I don't know how popular they are. 
they're not performed that often. Um, um, what about you? I mean, personally, I love uh, his piece Cuban Overture. Uh huh. Yeah. I, I think it's one of the more underrated overtures ever. <laughs> um, it's it's fantastic, and I think he wrote it when he was in Cuba or after he returned from Cuba. So it's a really really awesome piece. It's right up there in my book with in American in Paris and Rhapsody in Blue, his the other um, staple pieces of his that you hear performed a lot. Um, Cuban Overture, I thought, I, I think it's just, just brilliant. And it's very Gershwin in so many ways. He brings in, again, sounds, rhythms, tonalities, instruments that were kind of limited to the streets and what's kind of club music, but put it in the concert hall. Yeah. I, I, I do think um, Bernstein used it as heavy inspiration for parts of West Side Story. Well, I was, I was going to try to move it into West Side Story. Um, okay. Yeah. If you want to, if you want to go there, because um, you're gonna have to tell me. I I don't know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you're usually better at this than I am, Chris. Um, if you had to, if you had to sort of describe West Side Story, you know, in under a minute. <laughs> I can do it in under a sentence. <laughs> yeah. Greatest work of art of the 20th century. Awesome. I like it. <laughs> no. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, that argument could certainly be made. How about that? Greatest work of art of the 20th century. Yeah. I, I, I would, I would be um, completely happy to, to argue that point on a debate stage. Right. Right. No, it's, um, it, it's a good one. I mean, West Side Story, uh, the thing with the West Side Story that is so poignant and timeless and elevated and universal too. The thing about it is it's one of the greatest uses, I think, of art and that art in the sense of multiple art mediums combined. It's greatest use of art as a way to tell a narrative. So yeah, you have the brilliant score um, by Leonard Bernstein. You have the brilliant lyricist, Stephen Sondheim. You have the story, it, script, book, libretto, whatever you want to call it, by, by Arthur Lawrence. And, of course, you have the incredible choreography and dancing by Jerry Robbins. Jerry Robbins. Jerry Robbins, who yeah. was, yeah, choreographer, uh, who went on to choreograph Fiddler on the Roof and worked at New York City Ballet and stuff, you know, brilliant dancer. So it was all these, so you have this musical slash opera slash ballet <laughs> All, all in one package, and it refuses to totally succumb to any one of those, but instead uses that brilliant intersection to be the magical thing that it is. I mean, it's also, it also, I mean, in addition to being, you know, a musical opera ballet, like you said, it, I mean, the, the actual, the actual lyrics are also really interesting. Um, I mean, Leonard Bernstein, and it, like, it, it really functions like. There, there are parts of it that, that, that really function like poetry. Hmm. Um, both Leonard Bernstein and, and especially Stephen Sondheim were, um, were very erudite, very literate, obviously. And, and they both loved word games. And, um, you know, Leonard Bernstein, when he was a kid, um, you know, he made up with his siblings, I think, or friend, um, like an entire made-up language. Um, and Stephen Sondheim, you know, would always be you know, solving and constructing crossword puzzles, and um, and they both love playing with words so much. And you know, there's so many examples, but the one that always cracks me up is um, is Officer Krupke, where 
where they ended with with the with the line G officer crop key crop you Yep. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you know, it it really, it's um, yeah. It it is all of those things that you said, but you know, it, it also if even just if if there were like a book, um, like a, a book of poetry with some of the uh, songs from from West Side Story, you know, it would it would function on that level as well. It really is yeah. everything. But to 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 go on your point of um words and wordplay, um, yeah, it is one of the great love stories ever told. Uh, you know, both on the stage and on the screen. What's funny, the word love isn't used once in the entire musical. You know? yep. So, and it's funny, uh, I'll talk to some people and they'll say it. it's, oh, the, I say it's part ballet and they think, oh, really? It's part ballet? And to which I say, yeah, it opens with 10 minutes straight of just music and dancing. <laughs> uh, yeah, of course. So yeah, it's absolutely absolutely a ballet, and um, yeah, Jerry Robbins was a brilliant choreographer. The the yeah, story I mean, is of course based off of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, right, right, which is in itself based off of the the myth of Pyramus and Thisbe. Gotcha. Oh, but, I did not know that actually. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, and so yeah, there's there's something universal about West Side Story, and it's. I think it's very American too in its sense that it refuses to classify itself in that sense. It's a blend of all these different arts, just like American culture is a blend of different cultures, right? You know, you have songs like Somewhere, right, which is definitely operatic in in, in every sense. You have songs like America, which I adore and love that song. And that's very much, um, you know, from musical theater, right? That's Sondheim stretching his musical theater chops in Broadway. I like the shows of America. Comfort is yours in America. Nuggle the dot in America. Walk the walk road in America. And then you have songs, quote, songs like Mambo and Dance at the Gym, which is all about dancing. So it is, it is very much a blend of, of all those aspects, which it makes it even more American. <laughs> and, and even in the music, um, like mm-hmm. even in the music, it's all there, kind of like what Bernstein was saying about how when you listen to an, an American in Paris, it sounds American because the notes are American. Not for yeah, another reason. Yeah. I think it's the same thing with West Side Story, where even just in the notes, I mean, something like um, like somewhere, yeah. um, the the melody is is basically a straight up quote of the second movement of Beethoven's Fifth Piano Concerto, the so called Emperor Concerto. Is it now? Oh, really? Yeah.
it's just a straight up rip. That's interesting. And and something like something like Cool is a twelve tone fugue. So you know it's taking mm, this yeah. very oh yeah this very you know rigorous um, this very like otherwise a, a rigorous a rigorous composition method, but it's it's applying it to this you know fun dance number. Um, right. The famous, like, the quintet, like the Tonight Quintet. Um, that's basically a version of, um, um, uh, God, what is it? It's from, it's from Rigoletto. I think it's like Act Three in Rigoletto, um, at the opera by Verdi. Um, I think it's like Bella Filia dell'Amore or something like that. Um, and it, they also, there's like a, there's like a quartet that's almost exactly like the, this quintet that's here. So even in the, even in just the music, it's, you know, it's pulling from all these disparate things like Italian opera, you know, the 12 tone, you know, second Viennese school, old, you know, Baroque fugues, um, you know, Beethoven piano concerto. It's pulling from all these different things and turning them into like fun dance numbers. And that's also very American. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, and even, and of course, I mean, one of the most American aspects of West Side Story is the fact that the story, of West Side Story, deals with the the conundrum that is American identity itself, right? Um, yeah. The song America. It's funny. There's all these um, all these Puerto Rican immigrant women and men dancing and singing about life in America and what they want their life in America to be. But let's not forget, they're immigrants from Puerto Rico, which is and was part of America. <laughs> so they're actually already American, but it's not the American title that they're obsessed with and dreaming about. It's the American life. It's the idea of, of America, because they're already technically Americans. <laughs> you know, I never thought about that. That's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it's it's... I mean, maybe it's telling that the lyric, that the the lyric is, uh, "I want to be in America," right? Yeah. It's yeah. not, "I want to be an American." Hmm. Oh, that's true. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, can't believe it's, I never thought about that. Well, <laughs> it's. I've I've always said this too. Um, you know, one of my marks of a good movie, we could use West Side Story, even though West Side Story is so much more than a movie, but one of my my personal metrics that I think helps define a good or great movie is that the more you think about it, the more it rewards you for thinking about it. And West Side Story yeah. is definitely one of those where this is just one small example. There's so many layers and so much going on in it beyond what you're just seeing here that really gives it that depth and universality. Yeah, absolutely. You know, also, I think, I mean, West Side Story, I mean, just to, to go back, I've, you know, one, one other example, I think, it's the, 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 the sort of rumble scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's almost a direct quote of, um, of like, the, one of the interludes from um, Benjamin Britten's opera, Peter Grimes. Hold 
Um, mm. So it, it is not only not only a compendium of um, you know music from musical styles from around the world and from different time periods, but it is also an homage to American music itself. There we go. There we so. go. Yeah. Also with West Side Story too, I do think it is the rare case or one of the rare cases where it's a brilliant musical. You know, change it, it also just changed the course of Broadway too. We can't even. Yeah. It changed the course of American pop culture, Broadway, theater. It's also a brilliant, brilliant, incredible film on the silver screen. And, and that is you, very rare. If you ever get the chance to see it in original 70 millimeter film, like I've been for- fortunate to to have seen, um, it just it's gorgeous. It, it is so it's so vibrant um, that film. And one of my favorite pictures, one of my favorite like behind the scenes pictures for a film is uh, there's a picture, I'm, I'm sure we, we can link to it, or we'll, we'll find it. It's a black and white picture of, of Jerry Robbins, basically behind the scenes and like the making of West Side Story, and it's him on set working through some of the choreography with the actors, and it's just oh. kind of funny. It's, it's like Jerry Robbins doing his thing, and I wonder if they knew how mo- monumental a film that would become. Um, Probably not. I'm sure they were. I mean, weren't, weren't they having, you know, enormous difficulty with um, casting and everything else? Like they, they were probably oh, just sure. so caught up in, in just getting the film done, that they were, they and probably didn't have any time thinking about, you know, how great it was the thing that they were doing. And if you just think about it, like you want people who can sing really difficult music, while mm-hmm. being able to dance, you know, a difficult choreography. Um, they got to look a certain way. Yeah, right. And right. they all have to be young. <laughs> yeah, right. So, you know, that's that's not an easy casting job. We can't talk about West Side Story without talking about <laughs> <laughs> perhaps our, our mutually favorite YouTube video. <laughs> um, which, to like set the stage, um, when we were having our YouTube showdown uh we both in afterwards after after we turned off the mics we both kind of talked about wow there's there's one video i'm shocked is not on your list and sure said yeah there's one video i'm shocked is not on your list and we're like wait a minute are we thinking about the same video (laughs) sure enough the video we were referring to is it is the the making of west side story which is a documentary featuring leonard bernstein I, th- I think we both didn't want to pick this on our YouTube list because we, we we didn't have we didn't want to have the same video on both of our lists. But because of that, us trying to play chess against each other, we both lost. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, do you mind yeah. kind of giving the the quick one to you about what this video is? Um, yeah, it's like a it's like a ninety minute documentary, um, and I think at that point Leonard Bernstein had never actually conducted front to back the entire score for West Side Story, correct? Um, I believe so. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure how that came to be, but I, I don't think he was either. Um, but so, so he, he, is, he is recording, um, he's recording the entire West Side Story, conducting it for the first time with Jose Carreras. Um, who else? I mean, they're, yeah. they're, they're all phenomenal musicians. Um, the the orchestra was really great too. Um, it, it was like a it was like a, a, a freelance group where they where they they sort of got orchestra they got musicians in from around New York and you know, yeah it was basically yeah. like the all star New York orchestra <laughs> yeah um, and and the musicians are phenomenal and um, 
Yeah, this documentary just basically follows Bernstein from the very first rehearsal where he's just sort of, you know, making a roadmap of how he thinks everything should go with the singers to the actual rehearsing and the recording process and seeing, you know, it's it's a very strenuous um, process to actually record something. So you can see all the all the travails that they go through and the, the stressful moments and the yelling at each other and the cigarette breaks. <laughs> could it be? Yes, it could. Something's coming, something good. If I can wait, something's coming. You went to G major instead of F major. Also, if I can wait, you're not waiting. You're uh, what, maybe we should break and listen to it? Why not? Why not? <laughs> For a few of the rehearsals, you can just tell Bernstein is hungover slash still drunk. <laughs> he has like a glass of whiskey right there and he's smoking. It's like, all right, take 94. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, he's yelling at, at, the, at the recording engineers and the singers. <laughs> yeah, um, but it's all in yeah. the service of the music. Yeah, it's, it's all in the service of the music. And I think it's an interesting documentary too where the joke I, I just kind of made there's some pieces that they're just doing so many takes for because they just can't get it right or the way Lenny wants it so they're just doing over 100 takes and then there's some other takes or some other um, moments of the musical where they where, where they record it in the first take and Lenny's like yeah that's it we got it and and so it's kind of interesting to think and read between the lines when you're watching this documentary why was that a one take wonder why is this one there's trying to just fix the smallest little details it's it, it's an interesting look at, at what the recording process is like and how yeah. the perspective of of the musician versus the perspective of the recording engineer is often so different um right. because being being right. in the middle of the music making gives you such a skewed perspective of it so so sometimes you know you know you know they'll be at like take 94 like you said and and the recording engineer is sitting there thinking, you know, that was fine, Lenny. Like, I'm here following the score and everything is perfect. And Leonard Bernstein is like, no, this is not, I, I did not hear it exactly how I wanted it to, to be heard. You know, and, and they're at odds there. And then other times, like you said, again, it'll be take one and they'll knock it out of the park and Leonard Bernstein will say, this is it, that's it. And the recording engineer will jump in and say, you know, I think the second clarinet was off. You know, in you know this bar, that one, and Leonard Bernstein is saying, "I was here. I heard it. It was perfect. It doesn't get any better than this." Um, right, right. So you know that that's just one of the amusing things of of recording, which is that you know mm. th there are as many different things to hear as there are people, and especially when you get you know brilliant, hot-tempered people together, there's going to be some yelling <laughs> and arguing. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> also, just funny. And interesting how relevant West Side Story has remained. It it's so fresh. It feels like it could have been made last year, and that that's a true mark of a piece of art, I think. Yeah, and, and I think um, I think that's one of the one of the um, great things of choosing um, this as the structure of your your plot something that is as timeless as um, Romeo and Juliet. You know. It's also arguably the greatest dancing ever filmed. Like the movie West Side Story has the greatest dancing ever in, in the movie. Yeah. Um, 
I think you've said before too, um, you know, even if you don't know a lot about dance or ballet or choreography, we all know greatness when we see it, (laughs) since we're constantly surrounded by mediocrity at best. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Um, I I wasn't aware that I said that, but I'm glad I did. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and this is one of those cases. It's, uh, It's a brilliant film, and also, yeah, the early 60s were such a great era for Hollywood. I mean, you had West Side Story, Dr. No, Sound of Music, Lawrence of Arabia. You had some really great films in the first half of the 60s. Yeah, I'm just going to say that I can't sign off on, sound, on the Sound of Music, but the rest of them I, I will I'll happily sign off on. <laughs> we'll save that for our, our Austrian music episode. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, I, w- I wanted to, because jazz is definitely the American music, and it's definitely, like, it, it has really become, like, American folk music. It has become the thing mm-hmm. that all American composers can now sort of rely on and use, kind, yeah. kind of the way that um, other nations have, have their folk music um, for, for their sort of um, nationalistic compositions. But... Um, I just wanted to sort of talk about some, some of the the other features of American music. Um, yeah, yeah, and maybe totally. for that we can we can go back to to Dvorak and talk a little bit about him. Mm. Uh, I, I think any 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 discussion of American music would be um, would be incomplete without talking about um, you know the guy who wrote the New World Symphony as well as the famous American string quartet. Um, yep. Yep. So Antonin Dvorak was a Czech composer um, who emigrated to the United States to um, to become the director of the National Conservatory of Music of America in New York City, um, and he was here from 1892 to 1895. Um, gotcha. Wow. And yeah, that school is no longer in existence. No. Obviously. Yeah. So, yeah. so um, I think. At the time that he came here, that was still the time that you were talking about, or like at the very beginning of this episode, where we were having American composers that really just sounded like derivative Brahms or something like that. So, um, you know, as is so often the case in in American history, um, Americans needed an immigrant to to point out what it is that's interesting about America to them. Um, so, you know, it, it, you know. As has been said recently, immigrants, we get the job done. Um, <laughs> he, he pointed out, you know, you have this great repository. Which includes you, Streeter. Sorry. Which, yeah. <laughs> he, he pointed out that, that Americans should stop writing European music and start writing mm-hmm. American music. Um, mm-hmm. And proceeded to, to write, you know, like we were saying, the New World Symphony, the, yeah. you know, vastly overrated American string quartet. Um, <laughs> And stuff like that, but but what was interesting about that is that he had identified the problem, but he ended up writing he ended up basically writing Czech music. It sounded like Czech music. It, right, it doesn't right. sound American at all. And in fact, like one one of the things I just found out, um, which is that the in the second movement of the New World Symphony, um, da, 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 da. that one, yeah, it's yeah, the yeah. famous famous um, spiritual hymn that that we know that everyone knows is you know going home. Mm-hmm. Um, 
that's taken. And I always thought, and I think most people probably think, that Dvorak took the tune for the second movement of the New World Symphony from the existing spiritual going home. Um, is, but did you know that he actually, he actually just composed that tune? And oh, really? Yeah, he just composed the tune, and it was turned into a quasi-spiritual by one of his students, um, William Arms Fisher. So it's a faux spiritual. It's, 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 it's actually not, yeah. So I think it's that... Like faux folk music. Yeah, yeah. Which, is really, yeah. which is interesting, but I think it's funny that, that someone like Dvorak came over here and you know, he really pinpointed the problem. You, know, you guys are writing Germanic music. You guys are not writing American music. You have, you know, you have all your spirituals and you know, Native American um, hymns and you know, folk music. Why don't you use that? And he was exactly right. But then he proceeded to write you know, basically just Czech music, you know, some, which purport to use you know, these old you know, American folk tunes, but really he was just composing them himself. Um, and I think that's, that's completely hilarious and one of those sort of quirks of history that um, yeah. are so charming. Well, I, yeah, and I think it too, I think too, that kind, of, that kind of even drives this point home even further where he's like, look, I tried to do it, but I'm not American. So this is how, this is how it sounded. Yeah. <laughs> you guys have to do it. Yeah. But um, I think one of the things that, like, even, even though it is, you know, Czech music, um, I think one of the things in the New World Symphony that, that does sound American um, is a quality that, that um, you know, going forward, I, I, I really see it in, in the music of people like Aaron Copeland um, or even Lucas Foss, who was, I think, born in Germany but um, educated in America and, you know, really became an American composer. Um, it's this. It's the sort of the the quality. It's like the the the, the prairie like quality of the music. It's, it's mm. these sort of wide open wide open stretches of melody. You know, you get these melodies that sound like normal melodies until there's a large interval that's just dropped somewhere in the middle of it. Um, and it, between the sparse orchestrations and the and these sort of um, wide intervals that are dropped into otherwise normal melodic lines. It really creates this this sense of of the kind of distance of America that that you don't have in the old world. Um, yeah, that's a good point. And it really reminds me of, of the writing of people like Cormac McCarthy. Um, you know, very American writers. This um, it's this this prairie quality. Um, a good example of that, I think, just thinking off the top of my head, is "Fanfare for the Common Man" by Aaron Copeland. Right? There's nothing jazz about that. It's a regal brass and percussion fanfare right i mean that's you know as european as you can get <laughs> but it's unmistakably american those open chords played by brass yeah those um those yeah very grand open intervals and spacing and majestic and the use of silence right mm-hmm. it's very it's very um looking over the the american great plains feeling exactly
Or, or you know, the, um, in the flute repertoire, there's the, the duo for flute and piano by Aaron Copeland. And the opening, oh, okay. the opening is also this thing. It's just, you know, beautiful melody, but the intervals are just, you know, they're, they're vast intervals, and, and it's, it's this very open figure. And again, it's the sort of looking over the plains. The reason I want to bring that up is, I think, you know, in the sort of uniquely American sound, you know, in the uniquely American landscape as well, you know, what we have are, um, you know, these booming metropolises, metropoli, you know, which... I, I like metropoli. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's stick with that. Yeah. You have these booming metropoli that are, you know, in the same, in the same landscape as... Um, these never-ending stretches of uh, prairie. So mm. Um, mm. I, th- I think they go, they go hand in hand with, with um, the American sound, the American landscape, um, the American psyche, and the same thing with, with American literature, you know, it's, it's the yeah. same feel. It's that American perspective, yeah. I think is a good word for it, right? With European friends of mine, it's funny, or when I, when I was over in Europe and I, I talked to Europeans, one concept of America that's hard for them to get in their heads and like wrap their heads around is how vastly open the United States is. Yeah. <laughs> how if you drive across this country, I mean, I mean, there are interstates, major highways where you do not see civilization for days. <laughs> it's it just, yeah. there's so much empty space in, in this country. Whereas in Europe, yeah, there's occasional forests or two, but there are vast stretches of, of this country where you could be driving along for hours upon hours. You have zero cell service even. You're like not in modern civilization anymore. And if your car breaks down, your only option is to just wait until <laughs> until someone comes by. Uh, yeah. Which is funny. I mean, in Europe, that's just that's not how Europe is laid out. <laughs> it's terrifying, but there's also something you know beautiful about it. It's oh, of course, yeah. I, the I national think... parks you think of and things like that. Yeah. Another great Ken Burns documentary. Just saying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's uniquely American. And I think it really contributes to the to the part of the American soul that is, uh, you know, the soul of a loner or the soul of a cowboy. I think it's, um, you know, obviously I'm, you know, seven or eight years into being American, but I think there's something about the prairie and the open space, the sort of self-reliance that's needed, even in the modern world. You know, like you said, it's 2020, mm-hmm. and yet if you get if your car breaks down in the middle of Wyoming, <laughs> you're fine. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah. I think there's something about that that contributes to, to the to the sort of American American soul. And uh, you know, in our in our film film episode, um, yeah, I mentioned yeah. that one of my favorite scores is uh, is the score that Richard Thompson did for Grizzly Man. You know, in retrospect, that was really not classical music at all. It's, you know, it's largely like electric guitar. But, I mean, if you listen to it, it, it again, it has this, this prairie quality, these, you know, this 
wide open space in the music and these large intervals. And um, I was kind of kicking myself because I was thinking, you know, that wasn't classical music that I, that I was talking about. But I was just thinking today that if you took his score and you played it on a piano, it would truly be um, indistinguishable from some compositions by Copland. It has the same quality. Mm. It's just the instrumentation happens to be, you know, more sort of folk rock-y or whatever. Right, right. But, um, but it, is, it is truly American music there, too. Right, in, in this right. sense, and and it has nothing to do with jazz. Um, yeah, that's true. That's true. So it's it's interesting to see American music grow up, you know, and now you know find all right, of its different right. facets. Right, right. Yeah. Like jazz was the obvious place to start, and that's kind of where it had to start. Yeah, that was just natural, right? Just like the same reason, you know. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, you, you hear like early Russian composers writing using Russian folk music as kind of the backbone of of their of their melodies and things. Right. Heck, even Tchaikovsky did it, and he was not an early Russian composer. But Copland's kind of funny. I mean, a lot of people, I'm sure, will recognize the music of Copland, even if you think you don't know him. Um, I mean, you know, he wrote, again, it's all about the commercial streeter, like the famous, you know, beef is what's for dinner. I don't know um, what this one is. But that's the Rodeo. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was a big commercial for, like, throughout the 90s, I think, early 2000s some beef company was there was their tagline really beef it's what's for dinner it absolutely is <laughs> yeah yeah to enjoy fine dining like this all you need is 30 minutes or less and you've got a table at one of the best steakhouses in town beef it's what's for dinner yeah but um with copeland um um who i will say is not my favorite composer just you know cards on, on the table yeah, um fair. not even my favorite american composer that's something me and Bernstein disagree about because so, I, I know Bernstein adored Baron Copeland. Bernstein did adore Copeland, but um, I think actually just as a as a side note, I think what the way that they actually got together was, um, you know, Bernstein. You know, he as we sort of hinted at earlier, you know, Bernstein loved a good party, and I think um, <laughs> I think he was you know when he was young, in his mid twenties or something, he was uh, he was at a party late at night. And um, there was a piano there, and he just got on the piano and just started shredding through Copeland's piano variations, which is an absurdly tricky piece of music. And you know, there was Bernstein in the middle of this random party, just tearing it up. Um, this yeah. piece that um, hardly anyone could perform, and and Copeland was there, and, <laughs> and he heard Bernstein playing this, his music, and and um, you know, was just amazed by this young man, and um, that formed a, a lifelong friendship. And I think everything that Bernstein wrote, um, he would run by Copeland, and Copeland would, would tell him, you know, this is this is derivative Schumann or something like that. And he he was very critical of Bernstein, but yeah, they had a lifelong friendship and mentor mentee relationship. So, yeah, I understand too. Aaron Copeland was a really phenomenal composition teacher. He could really help you, kind of find your own voice, which is which is why you that's like how you study writing or like study composition. It's not so much learning how to compose, you know, it's learning how to find your, your composer inside you sort of thing, right? And, and there are stories that Bernstein would tell where he would write pages of music, pages of score, and he would bring it to Aaron Copeland, and he would read through it and say, like, yeah, most of this, almost all of this is garbage. This is all terrible. But these two measures, that's you. <laughs> you know, he, he, he just had a way to kind of like dissect and pinpoint where 
where your genius was and and where you should focus and kind of nudge you in that direction. So, yeah, and that's um, the mark of a great teacher. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. Um, to stay in this kind of same vein, um, what I think is funny is how the U.S. kind of became a center of classical music and classical music composers throughout the 20th century, specifically Los Angeles. Um, you know, in the 1600s, the music, the classical music capital of the world was pretty much Venice. That's where you, where the great teachers were. That's where the great performers performed. That's where the great composers lived. If you wanted to prove yourself, you had to do it in Venice. In the 1700s, that shifted to Vienna you know, with the Habsburgs financing a lot of great music and things. In the 1800s, that shifted to Paris. Paris was the capital of music. And that's where Chopin, even though he was Polish, he lived most of his career in Paris. In the 1900s, that sort of shifted to a bit New York, but I think to a much greater extent, Los Angeles. And if you look at, if you go on Wikipedia, and you look at where Rachmaninoff, Stravinsky, Schoenberg, Shostakovich, Prokofiev, if you look at their birthplace, it's all something in Europe. If you look at where they died, it's all Los Angeles or <laughs> Beverly Hills. Or, um, and Shostakovich was professor at USC. He taught piano and composition. Rachmaninoff um, lived in Los Angeles and composed a lot of his great music while living in L.A. Stravinsky and Schoenberg, two composers who hated each other, both each other and each other's music. <laughs> uh, they actually lived on, on the same street in, in Los Angeles and, and never talked to each other, which I think is hilarious. Um, yeah. So, so I think it's kind of, kind of funny how L.A. became, and maybe, you know, again, to reference an earlier episode, the growing film scene, it, you know, L.A. became an artistic capital pretty quickly. Innovative artistic minds found their way to L.A., and not only in film, but also in music, not even just film music, but the classical tradition. So I, I like to think, you know, even though, yeah, like Rachmaninoff and Stravinsky are undoubtedly European composers, we would not call them American composers, I do think America played a role in their works, part maybe partly their success, but uh, you know their their um, their lives undoubtedly. Yeah, I, I think you know I, I spend a lot of time criticizing America, and so do you. But I think one of the you know <laughs> I, I criticize what America does. I, yes, exactly. I, <laughs> criticize what America does, but um, which is as American as you can get. Exactly, that's being the ultimate American right there. Yes. <laughs> But, you know, in the spirit of, you know, the 4th of July or whatever, um, the 4th of July, um, we can we can say one of the great things that America, you know, is, is um, just this. It's it's such a the culture is so, so broad and it has room in it for so many different kinds of music. Um, so at the end of the day, I mean, we can talk about, you know, jazz and all this and all this stuff but one of the hallmarks of american music to me is that it is completely eclectic and that it has it has no hallmark and and really american music is a free-for-all it you know especially as it grows up um you know the i can't think of another place on in in the world uh that would have as much room for you know gershwin schoenberg Korngold, Stravinsky, John Cage. Yeah, Charlie Parker. Yeah. <laughs> like it's, Copeland, uh, Bernstein. I mean, it's just, it's so... Yeah, it's good. 
Yeah, I mean, American music took a while to find its footing and had to start from somewhere. But I think the real hallmark of it is a sort of explosion that happened where it just became, you know, America, American music became um, what, it just became what American composers and composers who moved to America wanted it to become. Just like that's, you know, the same way that America is that too. There's no, there's no thing that is American the way that there is something that's French. The way that there is something that is French music or you know Russian music, there's also a Russian soul. But the American American music is going to become. Not only has it been um, defined by you know the eclectic forces that have been shaping it from within America. That's what it's going to be going forward too. So I think one of the interesting things is is that. You know, it's not that French music isn't going to change. But it's going to, I think, going forward, at least in the near future, it will be recognizably French music. Whereas in the next 100 years of American music, I truly have no idea what's going to happen. Because, mm. you know, America, mm. like American music, is a completely open book. And it's so open to being, you know, radically influenced by, by the participant in this crazy experiment we call America. Like, like American culture, like American music, America itself is just kind of making it up as it goes. <laughs> yeah, and it shows. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Um, kind of playing without the rule book. Um, to, yeah, to, to it, put it another way, I think one of America's greatest assets is it's, you know, compared to other countries in the, in the world, it is, it has an, America has an unparalleled ability to flip the middle finger. So, you know, I think, you know, that attitude is present in, in American literature, in American tech, in American art, in American music. That's what it is. It's, it's the, what American culture is, is the refusal to be pinned down into any one thing becoming its culture. You know, because there will always be new people who, who, you know, vigorously lay claim to this thing that we call American culture, to this thing that we call American music. There are always going to be new people saying, no, this is mine too. And it is theirs too. And it will always be the case. And that's why I'm saying, you know, in 100 years, I have no idea what, what American music will even look like. But it will be interesting. It'll be different. And it'll be unique. Yeah. I, we, we have to talk about your, your favorite piece of American music. Oh, no. Is this what I think it is? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Oh, wait. Let's go to the piccolo solo. <laughs> any thoughts, Schreeder? Any, any? <laughs> well, so I have to just take back what I said when I said that you know American music is anyone's uh, is 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 the birthright of anyone who wants to lay claim to it. I was wrong. It is not John Philip Sousa's. Hands off. <laughs> We're not giving this to you, man. <laughs> we vote no. <laughs> yeah. Your tribe has spoken. <laughs> yeah, get out of here. Is this the first 4th of July you won't be performing that? Because, you know, social distancing orders? <laughs> that will be, No, you're right. It will be the first 4th of July in a while that I will not be performing that. And uh, thank God. I mean, if, there's, if, if there could be... If it could be said that anything good has come of, you know, this pandemic, it will be that I and so many other people will not be performing Stars and Stripes Forever this 4th of July. And, and you know, we will be loving it. 
I hope. Yeah. You know, I'm almost actually surprised by how many flutists seem to actually like this piece. <laughs> I, it almost feels like a form of gaslighting. Like every time I show up to, to play this and, you know, there are other people around me who are like loving it. I'm like, am I going insane here? What happened to you? Is there some poison in the air on this day? But it's American, Streeter. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, so it's kind of, it's kind of cool in a way um, that, you know, I was talking about talking about Los Angeles being the center where all these composers and and everyone came to um uh yeah like how the United States went from being a non-country in just a couple hundred years very soon after they created their first original art form that being jazz just a few decades later it became an artistic capital of the world right uh that's kind of cool um and, and a place where, again, Rachmaninoff and Shostakovich, Stravinsky, you know, had to come to because that's where things were happening. And part of that was kind of uh, New, New York's role in a little way, just, you know, being the birth of Broadway and uh, the next stage of stage theater. <laughs> um, but also, I mean, more importantly, I think Los Angeles, that's where all these composers hung out, collaborated. And film industry and maybe is a little serendipitous where it just so happened for various reasons we talked about before how film became the root or how the new the brand new experimental film industry very quickly set its roots down in los angeles that was partly a decision partly luck and coincidence but you know a byproduct of that was la southern california and the united states becoming an artistic capital of the world yeah and and you know and um, and LA becoming the artistic capital of America. Really. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, that, that's de facto the, the first step into becoming the artistic capital of the world right now. Um, you know, mm-hmm. It may not be the case for much longer as America slowly declines, but... Um, <laughs> it's 4th of July, Shreeder, come on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I, I, want, I want to see if I can, um, you know, I'm very conveniently using this book right now as a stand for my laptop, but I, I want to see oh, if nice. I can find a passage, if that's okay with you. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, um, so even composers we have previously mentioned and and talked about quite a bit, um, other than all the the list of Russians I just named, um, composers that also came to America and set up shop here at least for a bit and composed some fantastic music here. Add to that list Gustav Mahler, who we talked about last time. As part of his conducting career, he conducted the New York Symphony, I believe, and mm-hmm. the New York Philharmonic, actually. I think he conducted, there were two orchestras in New York at that time. So he conducted, lived, and composed in Manhattan for a while. And another composer who we who we talked about quite extensively is Peter Tchaikovsky, who he composed most of the Nutcracker while living in New York, <laughs> which I think is hilarious. Um, it's one uh, of those facts that never conti- that never uh, fails to make me chuckle. Yeah, right. He composed most of the Nutcracker while living in New York. <laughs> I mean, that's just you know the Nutcracker, of course, was premiered you know back in Russia and such. And but yeah, with um with the composers from Europe coming to America to kind of join the party for a bit, <laughs> add Tchaikovsky to that list. <laughs> yeah, hey, who would have thought? Yeah, it's, it still just feels wrong, right? Yeah, I mean, it just. <laughs> It's, it's this weird, you know, like, what, what is this composer from, from Tsarist Russia doing in New York City? Yeah, there's pictures of Tchaikovsky, like, hanging out on streetcars in Manhattan and yeah. stuff. <laughs> and, and there's pictures of his, there's pictures of his very New York apartment with 
fire escape and everything. <laughs> yeah, that's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, even before L.A. and film and, you know, composers coming here in, like, the 1920s, even in the late 1800s, as we said, with Dvorak, too, there were Europeans kind of going, huh, maybe I should check out this this America place for a bit. Yeah. So there's... Um a long passage here. Um, if, if, if I may just read, read like a page from, from this book, we can use it or not. Please, please. I think it's relevant. Um, this is a, this is a, a passage from um, A Guide for the Perplexed, which is a book of uh, conversations between Paul Cronin and Werner Herzog. Okay, um, cool, cool. Let's hear it. And um, Paul Cronin asks the question, you live in Los Angeles, home of sun, surf, and vitamins. And Werner Herzog says, I leave such things, including gyms, exercising in public, and tanning salons, all the idiocies of modern urban life to Californians. I have been down to Venice Beach where the Muslim men congregate only a couple of times, and that was to show it to some curious friends. What I like about Los Angeles is that it allows everyone to live his or her own lifestyle. Drive around the hills and you find a Moorish castle next to a Swiss chalet sitting beside a house shaped like a UFO. There's a lot of creative energy in Los Angeles not channeled into the film business. Florence and Venice have great surface beauty, but as cities, they feel like museums. Whereas for me, Los Angeles is a city in America with the most substance, even if it's raw, uncouth, and sometimes quite bizarre. Wherever you look is an immense depth, a tumult that resonates with me. New York is more concerned with finance than anything else. It doesn't create culture, only consumes it. Most of what you find in New York comes from elsewhere. Things actually get done in Los Angeles. Look beyond the glitz and glamour of Hollywood and a wild excitement of intense dreams opens up. It has more horizons than any other place. There's a great deal of industry in the city and a real working class. I also appreciate the vibrant presence of the Mexicans. In the last half century, every significant cultural and technical trend has emerged from California including the free speech movement and the acceptance of gays and lesbians as an integral part of a dignified society, computers and the internet, and thanks to Hollywood, the collective dreams of the entire world. A fascinating density of things exists there like nowhere else in the world. That's interesting. That's interesting. What do you think about that? That is curious. Yeah, that kind of sums up L.A. Well, I mean, I've spent a lot of time in L.A. I mean... I have so much family in and around Los Angeles. And it's definitely a unique city. Um, it's a city unlike any other, for better or worse. <laughs> it is... Um, for better and uh, worse. Yeah, yeah, for, yeah, right. Yeah, I stand corrected. Um, <laughs> uh, no, it's... Um, it, people do undersell L.A. for how creative a, a city it is. Um, New York gets all the credit, and... It shouldn't and, and you know in New York it's it's the, the culture is definitely um, like Herzog is, is saying you know it's it's finance oriented and even just sort of walking around you get the feeling that it is a city of cultured people but people who are more interested in, in consuming culture or culture for culture's sake whereas Los Angeles and for to some degree I mean you live there so you tell me in San Francisco it may be more rough around the edges and it may not be as you know, it may not seem as civilized or cultured as somewhere like New York, but it is the it is the fact that where that kind of you know slightly crazy manic energy is that's that's where the true creativity lies. 
So, hmm. you know, if you want to look for the geniuses and if you want to look for the innovators, don't look for the people who are the most refined. Don't look for the people who are the most cultured. Right? Look for the people who have that sort of, you know, energy that is on the brink of tearing itself apart. Hmm. <laughs> and for that, yeah, you'd, be, no. you'd, be, you'd be, you know, you'd be hard-pressed to find a place that's more apt to tear itself apart than L.A. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how, how that city has not fallen apart <laughs> like, is, is a true marvel. Um, um, yeah, and yeah, where, you know, culture is like, yeah, the difference being culture as a commodity that you consume versus culture as a lifeblood. Exactly. You know? Right. Um, well said. Yeah. And yeah, LA, I, I think, um, has always had that. Um, and this whole culture we're talking about is just a, a spinoff, like a subset and a result of what it is American culture is. I think. Yeah. Right? Like LA is just very concentrated American culture. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's funny. Uh, and a funny fact, uh, when Disneyland was built and in, in what, like the fifties, um, a lot of foreign businessmen and heads of state from India, Asia, Latin American stuff, they would come to Disneyland in Anaheim, just south of LA in Orange County. They would come to Disneyland because it was sort of a crash course in American culture. <laughs> Right? <laughs> okay. It kind of makes... It is, though, no, right? No, you're right. You have, is, yeah. you have your, you have your um, you know, frontier land, with, like, with everything's Western-themed and such, right? You have your fantasy land, what Americans, you know, dream about, or fairy tales, or all that. Um, you have Tomorrowland, how America views the future, you know, from a pop culture perspective, right? <laughs> you have Main Street USA, right, at the entrance, which is meant to be, like, the most American street in the world. <laughs> <laughs> And has you know the barber shop has the candy store has the saloon has the the little theater you know so yeah. the American fire station it's more American than America yeah it's, <laughs> fair enough fair enough so so yeah um, so I know we're talking about like L A and L A composers that live in L A and the art work that is a product of L A L A just being that kind of that that concentrated spin-off of the grand American culture. That quote you just read is actually really interesting and really telling um, because everything he said, substitute Los Angeles for America in, in that quote he said, and substitute, I forget if you talked about New York or any of the other cities, substitute that for like old world Europe. Exactly. And that quote still makes sense and is just as true. Exactly. That, that, yeah, that, that's, that's exactly what I think. I mean, that was certainly my feeling. I don't know if I think I've mentioned to you a couple of times, but that was exactly the feeling that I had studying in Paris, that, you know, this is a very cultured city, but this is a city that is not going forward culturally. Like, it's very backwards looking, you know. The whole conversation around making music was, is this the French way or not? You know, yeah, which right. you would never hear that question asked in California. Is, yeah. is The question is asked always, you know, is this, is this a new way or is this the best way? Yeah. Is this the most interesting way? You know, but it's never, you know, is this, is this the American way? Is this, is this the way that we do it in L.A.? Because there's no way you do right. it in L.A. Because right, right. they don't have, they, it's such a fractured community, which is, which is a, the, the fountain of creative energy. You know, it's, it's mm-hmm. a fractured community. There, there's no, Los Angeles, you know, or California, or for that matter, America, has no vision of what it means to be itself. And yeah. that's, why, that's why there's so much creative energy in these places. As opposed to if you go to some places in the old world now, um, you know, they already have a they already have a very refined sense of what it means to be French, what it means to be Parisian. Mm. So you yeah, know, 
And that's where the ossification sets in. Right, right. Every time Fourth of July comes up, you, you know, you, there's always, always the cynics, you know, um, like, oh, America again. <laughs> but there is some things to be proud of, or proud of is the wrong word. There's some things that are pretty awesome from a from yeah. a musical perspective. I really hope we've given listeners some food for thought about. American music and you know it's more than just stars and stripes forever and marching bands on 4th of July it's actually a really fascinating very fascinating idea and a complex one that many people have tried to answer and address and that's part of the beauty there's no clear answer for the question we started this conversation with which is what makes music American yeah and you know fittingly that question is just as complicated as what makes someone American what what makes what makes American culture American? What makes, um, yeah, what what makes someone American? It's it's a it's a near impossible question to to answer satisfactorily, but um, yeah, you know, it's one that could you know there's a lot to be gained from studying it. It's it's a very interesting question, and you know, it kind of turned into it kind of turned into talking about American culture at, at large at the end. But I think that's also that's also interesting and worthwhile. I mean, it's all it's yeah. all you know, music is just one one limb on you know on the whole thing. So. I think it's you know it's worth talking about the entire thing. Um, yeah, music is just a a result of a society's culture. Yeah. 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 So uh, no, I mean we hope everyone has a responsible, safe, enjoyable Fourth of July, and while you're at it, enjoy some American music. Throw up some Gershwin, some West Side Story, some Aaron Copeland, even just <laughs> be American for at least one day a year. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Any final words? I'll be playing some outro uh, John Philip Sousa music oh, to God. sign us off. So. No, please. Anything but him. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, no, go do stupid things, have fun, blow things up. You know, that's what America's all about. But for God's sake, stay six feet apart while you're doing it. <laughs> <laughs>